Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. with your jumpers on. Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello there, Jane McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. I'm looking forward to spending the next half an hour with you. Coming up on the show today, the national vaccine rollout has been messy and confusing for many Australians. But imagine being a seasonal worker who may not speak English, helping out with harvest and trying to navigate the vaccination process. Australia's free trade deal with the European Union is likely to be delayed and is at risk following the decision to scrap a $90 billion submarine contract with the French in favour of a nuclear-powered fleet. And have you ever eaten flowers? You'll meet one farming family who is growing edible flowers and business is booming. All that and more on today's edition of Countrywide. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. But first up today, Christmas ham could be off the menu for some this year with a forecast shortage of produce in the lead up to the holiday. Workforce shortages across multiple agricultural sectors due to COVID-19 restrictions will cause supply chain issues and could result in supply of products like ham, lamb, fruit and vegetables not meeting demand. CEO of Richie's IGA, Fred Harrison, said it was likely food prices would sharply rise in the coming months. There was a concern last year, a similar story, that number of reductions in abattoirs were going to impact supply, and that was true. Fortunately, by the time we got to mid-November last year, life had returned to reasonably normal in the abattoirs, and we did get through Christmas okay. But in saying that, there were sacrifices, not the entire range of hams were available. Instead of, say, having a choice of 70 or 80 hams, you might have had a choice of 20 or 30 hams. So I would see last year continuing to happen this year. So I think there will be some shortages, but there should be still adequate to go around. What does that do with pricing? Certainly will be more expensive because the laws of supply and demand do come into it. If there's a shortage, then up go prices. So it will be slightly more expensive than last year, I would suggest, both pork. Uh, We're seeing now with beef and lamb, prices are through the roof compared to 12 months ago. And a lot of that is basically now, a lot of our meat is going overseas, exported overseas. And there's not as many cattle coming to the market because the farmers who own the cattle are holding onto the cattle. There's plenty of crop at the moment, so there's plenty of grass which fattens them up. So there'll probably be a bit of a flood of cattle towards Christmas, which will probably see prices come down. But the next month or two or three, we're going to see plenty of big price increases across beef and lamb uh, until we get more cattle back into the markets. We saw last year, as you mentioned, this issue with having enough workers processing meat. If the current restrictions stay as is, what do you think will happen up to Christmas? There'll be trouble. We will run short. If the restrictions that are in place today stay till December 24, uh, we will have far more shortages than we had last year and it will be a much bigger issue than we were talking about this time last year. What happened last year is that by the time we got to early, mid-November, most of the abattoirs returned to normal. And look, that's going to be the case this year. If we get abattoirs back to normal, let's say by the 15th of November, we will get through 
adequately, not with the full range or the full choice, but adequately. But every day that goes past the 15th of November makes it more challenging and more difficult to be able to fulfil the domestic market. Another supply and demand issue has been around our fruit and vegetables that are grown here in Australia. What are some of the problems that you've seen over the last 12 or so months? Australia is very reliant on people from overseas, New Zealanders, the Islanders, coming across and working here, living here for six, 12 months, even longer, getting to places like Robin Vale up on the Murray, and they do bulk of the uh, fruit picking. Now, they're not in Australia, so no doubt produce prices, not all produce, but certain produce, stone fruits particularly, will skyrocket in price in the lead up to Christmas and early in the New Year. So even with these workers coming to help, it's really too little too late. So we might see better pricing come late February, March, but I would think for the next four or five months, we're going to see fruit and veg prices go through the roof. So I suppose the takeaway for consumers would be that coming up to Christmas, if they celebrate that holiday, it's going to be a bit more expensive to have your family around for lunch or dinner. Yeah, yeah, I think that's going to be definitely the case. Look, I don't like scaremongering because, you know, we don't want to scare the consumer that things are going to be expensive. And unfortunately, with things like fruit and veg, you can't stock up because obviously it just doesn't last. But just following the shortage of fruit pickers, then that is going to be very much the case, unfortunately. And uh, the reality is we're just going to uh, manage it as best we can. But I, I certainly think up to Christmas, we're going to see fruit and veg prices much higher compared to 12 months ago. CEO of Richie's RGA, Fred Harrison there. But meat isn't for everyone. Last week, a federal Senate committee continued examining the labelling practices of plant-based meat alternatives. And on Friday, we heard the views of some of the alternative meat industry. Farming lobby groups have hit back at claims from vegan groups that attempts to regulate alternative meat labelling are anti-competitive. Farming groups like the Pastoralists Association of the West Darling have raised concerns with tricky labelling techniques that they claim are designed to mislead consumers. President Matthew Jackson told the committee plant-based products are benefiting from decades of marketing paid for by the livestock industry. There's been decades of investment into marketing and branding of Australian meat products by participants. Pay levies to support the development of markets for their meat products. Descriptors used on meat Packaging use words like beef, chicken, lamb and bacon. These words are accepted and trusted by consumers to indicate that the package contains a naturally grown animal meat product. The Pastoralist Association is concerned that alternative protein product labelling is misled by using descriptors such as beef, chicken, duck and bacon to describe a product that contains no real animal meat. Furthermore, manufacturers of alternate protein products are misleading consumers with tricky labelling by using big bold text for the product descriptor and smaller and difficult to read text stating that the product is actually plant-based. The Australian New Zealand Food Standards Code clearly states under the heading of design and printing issues, decorations such as logos should not interfere with the legibility of the words on the label. Avoid text printed on complex or pictorial or otherwise multicoloured backgrounds as it is unlikely to be adequately legible. There are already examples in retail outlets that ignore the first part of this requirement. A product seen in a retail outlet displays made and bacon in big bold writing, but disguises the words with plants, with decoration and embellishments. It also mentions meat-free in very small writing. While this may be 
meeting the legal requirements for font size, the proximity and very small font relative to the larger font stating bacon is difficult to pick up. However, representatives in favour of plant-based meat alternatives defended the marketing strategies used by the emerging sector. Ryan Alexander from the charity organisation No Meat May says Australian consumers aren't stupid and they know exactly what they're buying. So participation in No Meat May doubles each year because more and more Australians are wanting to reduce their meat consumption and they're seeking meat-free or meatless alternatives. Now, this shift in consumer behaviour is driven by informed consumers making educated choices. Australians are not stupid and we are not being deceived or tricked into buying beef-free or beefless alternatives. Now, whilst No Meat May actively promotes and encourages the consumption of more whole foods, we find that our participants are actively looking for convenient meat alternatives. Like many flexitarians, they are wanting to try meat-free or meatless alternatives. They are asking us for beef-free products that taste like beef. They are looking for chicken-free products that taste like chicken. And product labelling is an important signal for them to find the products that they are seeking. As is supermarkets putting 95% of these products together in a dedicated plant-based section so consumers can find exactly what they're looking for. Consumers rely on the reference to animal flesh or animal products when seeking alternatives. Just like we rely on the reference to gluten when buying gluten-free products or sugar when we want a sweet flavour but we're actively seeking to avoid or reduce sugar, we look for sugar-free. Is this the same for lactose-free, for dairy-free, cholesterol-free, fat-free, egg-free? I can't believe it's not butter is a familiar example, almost as old as I am. And we all know it is not butter. Ryan Alexander from the charity No Meat May. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world. ABC Radio. Australia's international borders are expected to be open by Christmas and a free trade deal with the United Arab Emirates could be on the way. Australia's Trade Minister Dan Tehan had plenty to say in a national address on Wednesday, including a new development in the free trade deal under negotiation with the European Union and Australia's plans to strengthen the World Trade Organisation. Here's a little of what he had to say earlier in the week. Respect for the WTO's rulebook has largely kept protectionist instincts at bay during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's why strengthening the WTO is one of Australia's top priorities. Australia wants to see action on four issues. One, a WTO trade and health outcome to contribute to health and economic recovery from the pandemic and facilitate access to medical medical goods, including COVID-19 vaccines. Two, an outcome on services domestic regulation, which will assist our services exporters hard hit by the pandemic. Three, a new agreement to reduce harmful fisheries subsidies to help support global fish stocks. And four, a way forward on reforming trade distorting domestic support on agriculture, which remains the most protected and distorted of all sectors. Australia's focus is on capping and reducing growing levels of agricultural subsidy entitlements, which are forecast to reach $2 trillion by 2030. That's worth repeating, $2 trillion by 2030. That's why we have to act in this area. We want to see action at the WTO, but as importantly, we want to see reform. The WTO remains our best place global institution to deliver on Cobden's vision of the free trade of goods as our strongest protection against the misuse of economic statecraft. While in Europe, I will also meet again with the EU Trade Representative, Valdis Dombrovskis, 
as we progress towards concluding a free trade agreement. FTA negotiations are always tough and hard fought, but we have made substantial progress during rounds 10 and 11 of negotiations. Key areas of the negotiations have been moving positively, including on market access for goods, services and investment, and in areas of particular interest for the EU, such as geographical indications. In fact, as a demonstration of the business-as-usual approach we continue to take, I've just signed off on our GI offer so our negotiators can discuss it with the EU over the coming days. Federal Trade Minister Dan Tehan speaking there as part of the National Press Club address. He was asked to clarify which geographic indicators he'd like to sign off on, but he didn't elaborate. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. And Jay McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. Australia's free trade deal with the EU is likely to be delayed and is at risk following a decision to scrap a $90 billion submarine contract with the French in favour of a nuclear-powered fleet. The French government is reportedly calling on its EU allies to delay the FTA after the submarine deal was announced as part of a new strategic pact between Australia, the US and the UK. In the UK, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is trying to ease tensions with France and he's defended the alliance. This is just a way of the, the UK, uh, the US and Australia uh, sharing uh, certain technologies uh, because that is the, the sensible thing to do in the, in the world in which we find ourselves. Uh, but that does not in any way mean that we wish to be uh, adversarial towards anybody else or exclusive. But German MP Bernard Lang, the chair of the European Parliament's Committee on International Trade, told Fran Kelly Australia has lost the trust of some European nations. It is more complicated. Uh, of course, now we will see that uh, some member states are not really able to find compromises, specifically in the agriculture sector, where I guess Australia has uh, the most offensive interest. And of course, uh, the question of trust is now occurring and uh, some uh, members could uh, ask for more safety nets, for more safeguards in such agreement. So I guess the dialogue and the negotiation will take more time. Even though the French ambassador played uh, down the notion of France trying to scuttle the free trade agreement when we spoke to him yesterday, there are persistent reports again today that France is actually calling on its EU allies to freeze Australia out of the trade discussions. Can you confirm that? There is a discussion how to answer this uh, submarine uh, deal. Uh, and of course, it is a serious issue because it is, um, let's say, a kind of attack against uh, European interests and European industry. It's not just a, a case of France. Uh, also, you, uh, a German company is uh, involved in this submarine project. So uh, it is a question how serious and how reliable uh, Australia is. And therefore, there is a discussion how to deal uh, now with uh, the uh, uh, trade agreement. But I guess there is no wish and no clear commitment to stop the negotiation. 
The um, foreign ministers from 27 EU countries are meeting in New York. Um, the submarine crisis has been added to the agenda of that meeting. The European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, says, quote, one of our member states has been treated in a way that is not acceptable, and she says she wants more clarity over what happened, again, quote, before we keep going on with business as usual. What clarity, what questions do you think the EU seeks to have answered? Yeah, as I mentioned before, so... I followed the negotiation with Australia quite closely. And uh, there was a kind of, of common sense and I, I, I didn't saw any problems uh, or major problems in the, in the negotiations. But uh, now there is uh, uh, the trust is, is missing. So look, uh, for, for example, we, we are uh, focusing on uh, renewable hydrogen. And I know that Australia is planning large-scale production of renewable hydrogen. And uh, if we are really uh, focusing on this as an important import structure for European industry, we have to really trust that this uh, is a supply which uh, will not change. And if there is but a new element in security policy and new interest, then it shouldn't happen, like in the submarine case, that uh, Australia is changing the supply chain. So the question of trust uh, and the question of safeguard will, I guess, the consequence of the situation we are faced with. Our Trade Minister Dan Tian travels to Europe next month for a new round of trade negotiations in the FTA. Um, a spokesperson from the European Commission says the bloc is analysing the impact of the AUKUS announcement. Um, Brussels has held 11 rounds of talks with Canberra so far. Do you think perhaps the French opposition will slow these negotiations if the plan isn't to scuttle the FTA altogether? Is France trying to impose some kind of go-slow, do you think? No, it co of course the situation will slow down the process. So there was a discussion if it's possible to conclude even this year. Of course, we had some problems with uh, GIs, the geographical indication. We had some problems on cars, the luxury tax, and of course we had also some problems on the agriculture sector. And I guess now the willingness of finding compromise specifically in the agriculture sector is limited. Specifically also regarding the situation you are faced with China. I saw the figures that the coal export to China decreased dramatically and I guess on the agriculture sector we have uh, also some problems in the air. I guess this will slow down the, the negotiation process. And as you know, we, are, we, uh, we have uh, uh, national elections in France in May. And I don't think that before the elections we can conclude a trade agreement under the circumstances. Bern, should Australia apologise to France, in your view? It is um, really an unkind uh, a, a situation France is faced now with. And, of course, a lot of investment is, uh, uh, was taken. So some kinds of uh, apologize or some kinds of uh, trying to de-escalate the situation from the Australian government uh, would uh, help um, uh, uh, for the, the better understanding. German MP Bernd Lang, the chair of the European Parliament's Committee on International Trade, speaking there with Radio National's Fran Kelly. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio.
The process to get vaccinated for COVID-19 isn't necessarily straightforward. You need to navigate booking systems and filter through some of the misinformation doing the rounds. But it's all the more confronting for seasonal workers, who may not speak English in some cases, can be undocumented and have an inherent mistrust of authorities. That's why groups like the Sunraysia Mallee Ethnic Community Council in Victoria's northwest, along with some government support, have come forward to help those workers get their shot. The council's pastoral care coordinator, Corey Ardale, says it's been working to overcome language and cultural barriers. We decided that there was a significant percentage of seasonal workers and undocumented workers that had no intention of becoming vaccinated through work that we had done. So we took it upon ourselves to change that. We started translating all of the government information around vaccination, around COVID, around risks um, and requirements. We also spent quite a bit of time um, working on, you know, there's a lot of uh, social media information in other languages out there that's against vaccination. So we work really hard on providing solid and, and, and legitimate information on on vaccination and the positives rather than its perceived negatives has been put out there. But I guess imagine not being able to read a language and or audibly understand a language and someone's saying, go and get a needle, but you don't know what it's for, why it's, why it's happening. So we've gone about an education process. And Corey, you said uh, try and imagine that scenario. I, I can't imagine that. I mean, no. it's difficult enough trying to navigate the online booking systems, find appointments, uh, deal with this flood of misinformation. But adding on top of that, uh, that language barrier, maybe that that, that fear factor as someone in a strange country, it must just be uh, incredibly confronting for some of these workers. Look, most definitely, mate. And I've, you know, spent lots of time in lots of different countries in the world. But having spent time in countries where I don't speak the language or read the language and I've had to have a, a you know a, was involved in a bit of an emergency situation uh, it was terrifying um, so imagine yeah look it was same thing I for the guys that are living here it's 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 daunting it's frightening it's it's many things if we can provide continued education and support around um, why vaccination's so important I think we're doing a really good job I think that the project probably needs to go. So funding ceases in December, but I think at least another 12 months just to ensure that we get this right and get this done, you know, almost, well, 100% of the ideal, but the highest possible percentage of vaccinated uh, seasonal workers for us, that that's our goal. And Corey, hard enough for the general seasonal worker population, but, but as we know, a portion of that population they are undocumented workers. So I suppose that's a whole nother layer with with yes. wanting to remain under the radar, having that inherent distrust of authorities. Uh, what are you doing with, with those undocumented workers? Absolutely. Um, so we, um, we're working really, really closely with um, our, our undocumented workers. We know them. We've engaged with them on a few different, uh, few different levels. So what we've done is gone to, um, well, once again, Sunraysia Community Health have, have basically just said to us, if you have people that do not have a Medicare card, they can bring even an expired passport that shows who they are, their date of birth and that sort of information, and we will vaccinate them. Imagine living in a country where your visa has expired, you don't know how to get a new one, you haven't got a Medicare card, you haven't got a driver's licence, 
But you want to be vaccinated. What do you do? So, Corey, that's that's a no questions asked policy. There's no prospect that these undocumented Correct. workers will get in strife just for seeking a vaccine. That's what we've um, been advised. Um, it, it's a very tenuous situation there. Obviously, somebody that's if, if there is somebody that came here three years ago on a tourist visa and hasn't gone home but is working, um, well, illegally or, or for, for, for cash, effectively. They're in an, their day-to-day life is fearful. They're, they're worried about being encountering police, encountering immigration, encountering anyone that, that can take away from them their ability to stay in the country and to work. But yes, the um, the medical community are not interested in whether somebody is or is not documented to be able to work in Australia. It's purely a positive thing that we're doing. Where we're just trying to keep people healthy. That was Corey Ardale from the Sunraysia Mallee Ethnic Communities Council speaking with Angus Burley. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. One Queensland farming family has switched from tomatoes to flowers as demand for edible flowers grows. The colourful blooms are making their way onto restaurant plates across the country as demand for aesthetically pleasing food emerges. Lucy Cooper with this report. You know the saying, stop and smell the flowers? Well, have you ever considered stopping and eating one? I really enjoy having that colour and the natural uh, taste of the flowers on the food. Edible flowers are not an unknown culinary trend. It's usually in expensive restaurants. So with the notion of eating with your eyes, they are more frequently brightening up food in regional Queensland. Edible flower growers Elsa and Damien Hughes are located in Upper Lockyer and grow a range of edible varieties. We've got dianthus, which is part of the carnation family. We've got violas and pansies. We've also got uh, snapdragons. Uh, what else Marigolds. We got? Marigolds. And we've got fuchsias, which are a little bit more of an abnormal Uh, (laughs) edible flower, but they are just beautiful. Are you finding that people that you sell to, do they have a certain colour preference or is it really about that look of the flower? It's a variety of colours they're interested in. They need as much visual impact as they can get. So the different sizes, shapes and colours all contribute to what they need. Can you just give me a little overview of how this operation works? So each each, uh, flower or plant is grown individually in a pot with cocoa peat in it and they have, each pot has its own dripper and this is computer controlled and we supply all the water um, via the computer along with all the nutrients. What makes these varieties different to those ones in, um, that we'd grow in our garden normally? They're, they're actually exactly the same. They are all common garden varieties. It's just knowing that they are edible flowers, whereas, you know, in an in a ordinary garden, you wouldn't necessarily taste everything because you might be tasting something which you shouldn't be. Yeah. Would you say they have a distinct taste? Does it, does it change between varieties? Yes, but um, the, it's, it's not so much about the taste, it's more about the visual impact of the particular flower and their ability to be able to enhance what, they've been decorate, what they're decorating, basically. What's that process of picking, storing, and then eventually getting them to market? So we pick uh, probably twice a week, and you have to be obviously careful with how you pick them and how you pack them, and you need to get them to the market as, as quickly as possible to ensure that they remain... Um, as fresh as you can get them. 
How has COVID affected your operations? The market is is apprehensive of COVID lockdowns and you will just get a huge order that is cancelled. And in the meantime, we still need to pick the flowers because they need to remain fresh. It is an expense which we have to absorb. absorb. Um, So yes, it is very much an overwhelming detriment having all these lockdowns for our business. Looking towards the future, are we looking for exports? What's your next step for you guys? We would like to look at exports. I think we've got a wonderful product. You know, there's only so much we can supply to local markets. And when you start looking at sending to um, different cities in Australia, you need to look at the costs in terms of road transport not and the actual delay in getting the product there. Our next step would be to look at exporting. Um, I think that would be a, a natural extension of where we are from here. Elsa and Damien Hughes of Elsa Fresh, an edible flower farm. Getting into the spirit of Carnival of Flowers in Toowoomba is local bakery, Baker's Duck, who have decided to incorporate edible flowers into some of their pastries. Pastry chef Katie Woods says flowers add aesthetic value to her products. We have used a lot of dried in the past. We like to garnish with them, but for the month of Carnival, we always love, well, I particularly love to grab fresh flowers and put them on our special, which is our treat, and also on our fruit danish as well. Katie Woods, pastry chef at Baker's Duck, speaking with Lucy Cooper. And that's all we've got time for on the program today. If you'd like to catch up with some more rural news, head online to abc.net.au forward slash rural.